What's up, headbangers? Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast, where we geek out on all things rock and roll. Hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. You can also leave likes and comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Instagram at talklouder underscore podcast. And of course, our website, talklouderpodcast.com, where you'll find links to our merch and our previous episodes. I'm Metal Dave, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster. And uh, today's guest, I got a full confession here. I was not that familiar with our guest today until you booked him on the show. I started doing my homework and I really liked what I heard. So I was really excited that you got him on the show. We've got Joel Grind from Toxic Holocaust on the show today. And uh, besides being uh, known as a musician, he's also quite an accomplished producer, mixer, engineer, studio guy, basically. And he's done some pretty impressive things. And, and we found that he's, he's very well-rounded throughout his career, has done enough of those little bits and pieces that he's actually composed a pretty impressive uh, resume. So uh, I really enjoyed I learned a lot from him today, sort of from a behind-the-scenes perspective. And he's got that in aces. So, Yeah, I, um, he came on my radar probably... 2005 or 2006 I went to see Midnight play and Toxic Holocaust was the opening band and oddly enough and we talk about this in the episode oddly enough it was I didn't realize because it wasn't you know on the you know no one would know but uh Toxic Holocaust is open opening the show and what it was was it was uh it was Joel and then, you know, what seemed to me toxic was his band. And then I just see, you know, Toxic Holocaust finishing their set. And then Midnight was going to get up and play. Well, it was basically, you know, I see his band just go off stage and put hoods on and get back on stage. And it's Midnight without without Joel. <laughs> so I thought that was yeah. really cool. And like it, it was the first or an earliest inception that I knew of of bands you know, front men sharing bands, of course, that kind of thing is very popular and, and normal now. A lot of people wouldn't. I know it sounds weird to some probably still, but anyway, so that was my first. Uh, and that's he gave me a copy of uh, Toxic Holocaust, Evil Never Dies. And we've rarely been in touch, but we've kind of watched each other's careers from afar, so to speak. And now Toxic Holocaust has like, I don't know, seven, eight, nine records out and more on the way. And Joel stays extremely busy in the underground. Um, yeah. He's well-versed in black metal, thrash metal, speed metal, uh, as well as punk rock. It's, it's, it's not, we didn't talk about this, but he's a Mentors fan. And um, I need to send him some shit jackers. I think that he would get that. I really think that he would uh, find his laugh and his smile because, you know, he's pretty serious about his metal, but it's, you know, comes with a sense of humor, too. I think that he would dig the shit jackers um, if he's a tourist fan. But anyway, I really think that Joel is kind of this uh, very special sort of uh, gifted uh, renaissance man of uh, underground uh, loud music, whether it be metal or speed metal or black metal or punk, whatever. Or satanic rap. Sure. Yeah. And we talk about (laughs) that too. We found out he's, yeah, had his hand in a satanic rap project. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying. I think he finds these little niche things 
that are just so out of bounds that he gravitates towards them. And, and he's, uh, he's young and he's good he's, at it. He's young. He's tw- he's 20 years or, you know, he's 20 years or so younger than me. It's crazy <laughs> that he was like almost born too late for what it is that he's kind of doing, at least by 10 years or so. It's very, very, very cool. And uh, yeah, it was great to have him here. Yeah. Yeah, really learned a lot today. Joel Grind from Toxic Holocaust on the Talk Louder podcast. Hey, yeah. Joel. How's it going, man? Joel, what's it's happening? going great. Really awesome. good, man. Great Having my morning morning coffee. I'm a little bit ahead of, ahead of you there. Are, so. are you, you, where are you located? Portland? Portland. Yeah. Well, right outside. It's like, uh, I live in, it's called Oregon City, but it's about, you know, half an hour outside of Portland. And, yeah. Your family? Your, your family is? That's where your family is? My family's actually from the East Coast. Um, Maryland. I Maryland, yep. Right. Yep. Ah. Right on the line of Maryland and Delaware. So I'd bounce back and forth between those two. They all wow. live in Florida now, which is funny. So I get to go enjoy both extremes of weather, either the sun or the uh, the rain, you know? I'm sorry, so, who, who's, in, who's yeah. in Florida now? My parents, they live oh, down okay. in Florida now. So okay. yeah, I get to go visit them for Christmas and enjoy the the warmth and then get stuck with the rain for the rest of the year here. So, <laughs> well, that's kind of, that's kind of winning. Do you still have family in Maryland? No, actually. Uh, yeah. Everyone's down in Florida now. So it's kind of, kind of interesting. Like my, they basically all relocated. My uncle lives down there and everything. So, okay. Were you uh, ever part of, or I'm sure you've attended, but I, I, excuse, I, I, this will probably happen a lot. Uh, excuse <laughs> my, anti-knowledge and of, of all of your background but oh, that's, that's, when that's you were interviews for <laughs> were you in maryland uh, old enough to like go to attend or even perform later on maryland death fest stuff no actually well I, I was i I've, I've attended it before we've actually surprisingly have never played it um okay but uh yeah i would what was great is um especially at the time you know when you start driving and stuff i was able to go basically to all the, you know, all those cities are close. Like you can go see a band in New York, go see a band in Philly, go see a band in Baltimore, DC, you know, it's like, those are all weekend trips. I mean, it's, it's easy to go see a bunch of stuff. So that was nice out here on the West coast. Everything's much further apart. So, right. Well, it's like, it's like Texas kind of, uh, well, it's not that bad. I remember one time. San Antonio is like an hour from us, you know, Houston is two hours from us and, but Dallas is like four hours, you know, four, it's a, it's a trek to go to Dallas for me anyway. We had a a crazy tour one time. We basically played a show in Houston and then had to play in El Paso. And I was like, oh man, that's, that's a trek. (laughs) Yeah. That's brutal. (laughs) That's like driving to New Orleans or something, going to El Paso. That's like nine or 10 hours. Yeah, it's brutal. And yeah. that was like, I think it shows back to back. So someone who booked that one was demented for sure. <laughs> <laughs> or failed geography. Or just class. a masochistic maybe for yeah. the band. <laughs> well, so they, you're, uh, people forget Texas is big. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. So Joel, you uh, you're you're based out of Portland, Oregon, and uh, and, and so is you know the band Toxic, Toxic Holocaust. Tell us, uh, you formed I think uh, around '99, 
Yep. Um, what was the scene like in Portland for that style of music? Because I don't think of Portland or I, I think of Portland as having a music scene, but not necessarily the type of music that you do. So tell us a little bit about the formation of the band. I know that when you started, you were basically a one man band and you were putting out things on your own and then you bring in some guys to actually do some live shows. But was there a scene for that type of, you know, thrash crossover type metal in Portland at that time? Um, honestly, well, when I started the band, uh, I was actually still living in uh, Maryland. So, um, but even then, you know, I, I knew, you know, later on, I like, you know, I was aware of the Portland scene. I think then it was definitely more like crust punk and, and stuff like that it still is Portland's like kind of notorious for more of that kind of, you know, a healthy underground punk scene Yeah, and, uh, pretty some pretty awesome you know tragedy and a lot pretty legendary punk bands that came from here of course poison idea before that and yeah. uh but uh from maryland from my my standpoint over there from growing up uh th i mean honestly there there really wasn't much in in 99 there wasn't a lot of thrash going on anyway um it was a lot more of the you know thrash was kind of like in limbo sort of it was in between like i mean there was still some stuff going on in europe and, and things like that but for the most part, there wasn't a whole lot, but, you know, I guess maybe because of my age, you know, I'm, I'm 41 now. So then I would have been around 17 or, or so. And yeah, um, I was going to say you know, 17 uh, year old likes the thrash stuff, you know, the, the, like the, the excitement of the, you know, the, the, the shows seeing like old videos of like DRI and stuff. Like I, I was like, I want shows to be like that again, you know, like with people like crowd surfing and, and things like that. So being that age, I was like, you know, that that's really what I was into nuclear assault, you know, things like that. And I was like, I want to bring that kind of stuff back, you know, and unfortunately at that time, there wasn't a whole lot of people into it in my scene. So my scene also was, was a lot of like punks and, and things like that. So um, that's the main catalyst for why toxic was a solo project is because there wasn't anybody else really into that stuff. So I was like, well, if I want to do this, I kind of have to figure it out myself kind of thing which yeah. kind of ended up being something unique. You know, you don't really see that. I mean, it, now you see that in black metal and stuff and, you know, you saw that in black metal, but not really in, in thrash metal. Like that wasn't really a thing. So yeah, it was kind of like, it, it was, it was a good time to start the band, but also not the best time in certain ways too, because it took longer, I think, to build a fan base than other bands that maybe, had that scene already there again, you know, so, yeah. but it was, it was cool. It gave me time to kind of learn the ropes and, and things like that. So. Well, thrash metal, thrash metal had actually, and I'm not saying anything. I'm just kind of bringing it up. Thrash metal mm -hmm. had been around long enough to where you had some pretty good influence. And I mean, you, you could, you could say the big four, you could say, you know, and even talk about, uh, you know, your, your first Venom record and your, I yeah, mean, yeah. 17 years old, starting a thrash band, you know, in, in like the late nineties is still not a bad idea. If that's, if that's what you fell in love with, if that's where your heart right. is. And that's, it's not a, like a bad idea. It might be uphill by 99, yeah. but Obviously, yeah. you weren't you weren't afraid because it was something that you were passionate about. Because, let's face it, here we are in whatever fucking year it is now, and all of this shit has happened to music and for music and hate, love it or hate it. You know, you're you're still sounding 
consistent to your ideas. Yeah, it's funny. It, you know, like sometimes people ask me, like, well, kids will come up to me and say, you know, like, do you have any advice and things like that for, you know, starting a band or I want to do this? And I always tell them, you know, make sure you do it because you love it. Because if you're doing it for any other reason, like money, for instance, you're going to be pretty much disappointed, you know, so you better love what you're doing. And, uh, yeah, do it for the right reasons, you know, do it because, you know, you're not hopping trends and things like that. Do, right. do what you like to do. You know, it's like, first and foremost, music should be something you love to do, you know, because, you know, if you're doing it for monetary reasons or any other motive, like I said, you're going to be disappointed, I think. So, yeah, yeah, if you even if you loved just like sappy pop music or were like singer songwriter or whatever, if that's what was your passion, even then trying to do that as your as your goal job yeah uh, to pay for pay for your food and rent or what to live that's just as hard or harder absolutely. to break into by anyway cuz it has to be good yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah. if you think of it as a competition that's where your heart shrinks and dies and you can't you just exactly. have to be you just have to be passionate about it. If you're passionate about something, the chances of it being good or palatable or translating in in any way, uh, if there's a bullseye of if you know, I hate to, that's a terrible analogy. Yeah, but if it's go if you're trying to aim at something, it should be because of the passion and not because you're hungry or well, no. Being hungry is good. That can help yeah, your passion a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you know what I'm saying? It, do, it doesn't Absolutely. matter what kind of music it is. It can hurt sometimes if you're looking at it the wrong way. Yeah, because, for instance, to put it this way, like if you truly love it and you maybe don't, quote unquote, succeed, it doesn't it still doesn't feel like a waste of time because yeah. you loved doing it along the way. You know, it's not like you wasted your time trying to like make it or whatever that means nowadays. But you know, but if your only goal is to, you know, make it or whatever, and don't really particularly have that passion for it, it's just going to seem like a giant waste of time. And like, why was I doing this instead of, you know, doing something else like working at Microsoft or something, you know, it's yeah. like, I'm going to make way more money doing that, you know? Right. But, you know, your first few uh, releases were basically done as a one man band. It was basically all you. And, um, and and you're known also as well for besides Toxic Holocaust, your production work and your engineering and that sort of thing. You're 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 well known as a studio rat, you know. To yeah, to if I may. Um, yeah, absolutely. So when you're putting out the, is it fair to say that as a kid you were technologically curious? Were you one of these kids that took apart the radio and you were you know sort of into all that stuff um, at an early age? Yeah, you know what's funny is like I I used to always walk around with um my uncle gave me this cassette recorder and I used to always walk around like recording like I would I I still have a couple of recordings of like you know like uh, me being a brat with my grandmother and stuff like you know it's just hilarious like I was always like recording stuff and just you know I was always interested in in that side of it and computers and and things like that so yeah I think I was kind of more leaning towards that you know, almost more so than music at first, you know, I kind of was into like that kind of stuff before. I mean, always loved music, but like before I even thought to play it, you know, I was kind of more recording just because I was fascinated by like, you know, hearing people's voices back and, and things like that. So yeah, yeah. I think I did kind of have that little bit of uh, 
a bug. And I've, I've read other interviews with people that are into, you know, engineering and things like that, that have similar experiences, which I think is pretty funny. It's like, you're almost push yourself into that direction, you know, without really even knowing it. Yeah, that, that's kind of why I asked. And I, I love that answer because I was I was asking because, you know, a lot of times uh, people fall in love with music and they want to become a musician. They learn an instrument and they start writing songs and they, they get some buddies and start a band. And then, you know, if you're lucky, you go into a studio and you kind of hand it over to an expert who handles all the production and engineering. You kind of did it almost in reverse kind of yeah. fell in love with the, the the recording and manipulation of sound and then kind of went into the music end of it is that right that's totally true yeah absolutely wow. i was actually recording bands like i got a little you know portable recording setup i don't know if you guys remember adats like the little yeah. but i saved up money for adats actually and um, i would record local bands at their practice spaces and that was before i even you know like before i had like toxic really so it was like so, I mean, I did, you know, the first toxic demo, but after that, I was, you know, doing that kind of thing, kind of as like a, like a side hustle in between my part-time jobs, you know, just for, just for fun, really. But, you know, getting into the local, local scene and, you know, just, it was, it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot from doing that. So this kind of segues into another question I had, if you're into, if you're, if your first inspiration is more the, the recording side of it. Um, most people that we have on the show, we ask them who their inspiration was as far as, for example, guitar heroes or whatever, your favorite drummer, whatever. So in your case, my question would be who, which producers or engineers, uh, were putting out material that you thought sounded great? Who, who were, who were your idols in that regard? This is kind of a, a weird one, but I always liked, uh, Tony Visconti from like, he did like David Bowie and things like that. Cause I always loved the drum sound on like, especially a lot of that seventies stuff. I always just loved the way the drums sounded like really dry. And which is funny because later on, I, you know, with toxic stuff, I kind of throw all that out the window and you know, the stuff I record and mix for other bands, I, I, I try to, you know, make it more like hi-fi, but the toxic stuff always ends up, <laughs> I just kind of go off on the deep end and do more lo-fi kind of reverbed out like dungeon stuff. So, which is kind of opposite of kind of what my influence is, but yeah, like I always liked that really dry seventies, like drum sound. And, um, I always thought they just captured guitars really well too. Like it just something about that era just had a really great sound recordings. And, but I also liked a lot of like, you know, um, I guess, I guess it would be grungy stuff, but like uh, Jack and Dino, I always thought the way he recorded stuff because he kind of did it more on a budget level and got great sounds. And I always thought that was pretty inspirational too. So it was cool to work with him later on because um, I did Overdose of Death with him. And uh, it was cool to, to work with him because I always liked the way he was able to like, capture like, like Nirvana's Bleach and stuff. Always thought that sounded really great, especially for, I think it cost $600 or whatever it says on the back. Yeah. Insane, you know, and it was recorded in a little, basically like, you know, a makeshift recording studio. If type that's, if that, if that's lo-fi, uh, Bleach is lo-fi, then lo-fi is okay with me. Oh yeah. Uh, because I mean, by of, today's standards where everything's sampled sure. and, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. It, yeah, it just but, sounds natural. You know, that, I guess that's not really lo-fi, but, you no, know what I mean? but, but it's not, a, it wasn't it's a million dollar record either. It's a know? heavy record and you could, it was probably a 16 track at that. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, but it's nice and dirty, but it still has some crispiness. hundred percent. Yeah. Drums are a little boxy. That's yep. what I mean by lo-fi. It's, sure. it's not as uh, it's not as warm 
You know, it yes. doesn't have that bottom that that hi-fi can can have without losing the edge, right? Yeah. And um, they do, you know, a lot of those bigger productions have that like sheen on top. Like sure. it, it's more like, you know, but I like that. I like that it sounds oh, yeah. like I think it sounds great, you know. Well, I like how Nevermind, I like how Nevermind even had a uh, a bit of a taste of what Bleach was about. Yeah. Uh, sonically, but had some sheen, of course. Um, yep. And then, you know, that's probably been remastered and even polished even more. Uh, totally. But but it's cool that, that, you know, bands like Nirvana came from that garagey uh, yep. thing that you sort of like fall fell in love with as 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 fast as you could being your only curse that you're only 41 right now right and, and me and dave well i should speak for myself are like looking at the ass of 60 right now so when you when you go back at it it's kind of like wow you know here's a, a kid if you will who's uh you know, recording punk bands in their garage and their rehearsal and making it sound the way he wants it to sound, yeah. you know, and, and you, and, and in being inspired by it. So, so when you think about, and this is kind of all over the place, I feel like, but I feel like I'm starting as early as I can. This, this record, Evil Never Dies, the date <laughs> on this I have is 2003. Yes. Right. As a release. So the songs on this were written 2000, 2001. These, this is your earliest record. This is a record you made in your bedroom. Is yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yep. I just think yeah. that's really badass. Yeah. That there's this teenager <laughs> punk ass kid that's <laughs> writing these songs that are obviously influenced by all of the earliest of like uh you know black metal and and thrash and uh you know whatever venom slayer i you like throw some punk bands in sure, there yeah. blah blah whatever i'm just trying to be a little generic uh but on the cover this drawing is out of control i i love it it's for people yeah. listening it's <laughs> it's a dude in his in his in his bullet belt bandoleros and his spike gauntlets with six 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 and the uh the graveyard shot the zombie the the leather jacket the and the uh you know defiling a corpse a female corpse um and wielding the axe and there's bombs going off and it's just very uh appropriate uh, as it should yes. be to the inappropriateness of what it is that uh the songs are saying and where where your influence as is as fantastical an idea of like early black metal and thrash metal and things like that um one of the things i love is i don't think that even people watching can see it you're wearing a rigor mort or you are wearing is this a self-portrait yeah uh, it's uh, supposed it, to be that you know what's funny a guy drew it for me and it was supposed to be me because at the time i had black hair right you're wearing a, a rigor mortis. That. that's actually supposed to be me uh, on the front <laughs> a rigor mortis t-shirt and and yes. that's one of my favorite things about this 
this yep. cover is, uh, you know, the headbanger, the, the dude is wearing a rigor mortis t-shirt with the old logo. And, um, you have a, you have some connection with Texas and you love, and there's, yes. you know, probably more than one Texas artist that, that, that you appreciate. Uh, sure. The, uh, the evil never dies. I love your logo. Uh, I, uh, we, you know, you and I are not close. We're just a, acquaintances from way back. And I've always loved the logo. Never change that. That's so fucking perfect. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, dude. It, so you're on the, on the back, you're wearing a haunting the chapel t-shirt. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you just can't fucking go wrong with it. Uh, what, tell us about anti, anti-goth. <laughs> it's a label so, that this would that produced this for you yeah how many yeah, copies it, of this are out um this I version is so there's two versions of that one is like a like a glossy kind of cover and the other one's like a matte cover this is a matte okay i think if i'm mis i might be mistaken here i think there is a thousand okay maybe total and okay. i think a hundred were the gloss and i think Maybe the 900 or, or Matt. I, okay. I could have that backwards. I'm not 100% sure. But there's like 100 of one. And then I, I think it's the gloss is 100. Okay. And um, yeah, that, that came out on Nuclear War Now, which I think they still are. Yeah, they still release a lot of stuff. And Okay. What's Antigua? I just opened a store in Texas, actually, which is interesting. Really? It kind of ties again into Texas. He's from the Bay Area, but um, I think he moved to Texas or just maybe just opened a store there. I'm not 100% sure, but they opened a store somewhere in Texas. Yeah. So check and that anti, out. Anti-Goth anti -goth is the label that this is on or no? Am I reading that wrong? Uh, no, it, that, that's the catalog number. Okay. All right. So it's uh, nuclear, nuclear War Now. Okay. Yeah. So uh, speaking I of I Texas... Uh, I, I read somewhere that uh, uh, many years ago you toured with the Crumbums, who are uh, friends, yes. friends of mine and, and Jason's and uh, cool. their, their local guys. Uh, tell us about that tour. Do you remember? Oh, it, it was, was great. 20 man. years was, ago, um, wasn't it? <laughs> feels, it feels like it. It was at least 10. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, they've been around for a while, too, haven't yeah. they? Um, David yeah, is now was, the singer uh, in the casualties. Uh, I think the crumbums. Yeah, that's, on, uh, that's right. Yeah, they're, the crumbums are on long term hiatus, and in their wake, the, a okay. new band called Starving Wolves was born. And then, out of, and then David right. is now in the casualties uh, as the lead singer. And I think he's starting to step back into maybe doing some crumbums and 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 uh, cool. rein, rein, uh, reigniting the uh, Starving Wolves, possibly. But anyway, yeah, David's a busy guy, and uh, yeah, I saw yeah. that you had toured with the Crumbums, and I went, "Oh, I got to ask him about that." Oh yeah, I love those guys, man. The, David is fucking hilarious, first of all. So he was great to tour with, just because he'd make you laugh basically every single day. So, um, but yeah, that that was a really cool tour. That that was a while ago. Um, I believe it was us, Holy Grail, which is a band from LA, kind of more power metally stuff has some thrashy stuff too and uh the crumb bum. so it was kind of a cool mix mix up of different styles on that tour which which i like you know it's like it all works together but it's not just the same kind of thing over yeah. and over yeah and uh yeah it was great you know we just did like you know clubs around uh i think we played in texas and did some shows in california and stuff it wasn't super long but 
it was uh yeah more of like a regional type tour and it was great yeah yeah uh jason was talking about the artwork uh a minute ago and of course i've got to ask you about you ed uh repka is yeah. uh, has done some of your artwork for toxic holocaust and most people will know him for his work with megadeth he did the peace cells but who's buying he did rust in pieces and then i looked him up and his portfolio just shocked me i mean he's done possessed nuclear assault he did my favorite circle jerks record um I'm, he did death, uh, scream, scream, bloody gore and leprosy. I think he did both of those. Yeah. So I had no idea that this guy had done so many album covers that I was aware of. So when something yeah. like that happens, how does this work? Do you find some of his artwork and ask him, Hey, I want to buy that for my album. Or do you commission him to create something original for your album cover? So this is kind of funny. So <clears throat> I got him, Basically, the, it was for a record that came out in 2005, but this was 2004 that I contacted him because, you know, it takes a while. If anybody has done a record, they know that art usually is the thing that takes the longest. <laughs> for whatever reason, artists seem to, you know, procrastinate right up to the very end. And like you're always waiting on art at the end. It, not to you know, throw shade at any artists out there, but, you know, so <laughs> it, it happens. Like any band will tell you that happens a lot. But um so basically 2004, you know, I was <clears throat> th like thinking of ideas for the next record. Oh, you know, grew up with Megadeth posters on my wall, things like that. And, you know, I was like, that would be a dream come true. That's like the ultimate like, thrash artist to have is like Ed Repka. So basically at that time, he actually wasn't really doing any band artwork. Like he wasn't, you know, that that scene dried up and, you know, a lot of bands weren't really using that kind of like colorful painted full color artwork anymore at that time. Um, so what he was doing at the, <clears throat> at the time, he was um, designing package, like the artwork packages for uh, like the Hellraiser action figure toys and stuff like that. He was doing the box art for that stuff. Oh, wow. wow. So that's wow. what he was doing was more action figure type stuff. Like, And so I contacted him because a magazine did a write up about him and it was just about his history and things like that. And I was like, cool, that, you know, had his contact information. So I got in contact with him that way. And uh, yeah, I commissioned, you know, I had an idea of what I wanted, you know, like similar, you know, you know, like a fallout scene, you know, to like peace, you know, peace cells and stuff like that, but not a, a copy of that, but like have that like kind of, you know, destroyed city type vibe. And uh, yeah, we kind of went back and forth and came up with some ideas and I, th I think he knocked it out of the park. It, it came out great, but better than I expected, you know, because you never know when you just have something in your head, like how the artist is going to see it, you know? And I, he showed me it back. I was like, cause you know, he does like a sketch and it's like, that's perfect. <laughs> that's I, I exactly what I'm looking for. I don't like yeah. to, uh, I think it's amazing. I think that it's sad. You said something a second ago <clears throat> that that kind of artwork kind of comes and goes in popularity as to what style of artwork, you know, uh, artists would want on their cover and, it's it's no secret the the album cover art can be very important if you especially if you plan to do this on LP which is a twelve by twelve yes. you know and it and it relates <clears throat> for for t shirt art and posters et cetera et cetera 100%. and and tattoos and it's influential to the world of what it is that we're talking about here so Absolutely. so to when you're just a digital band and your artwork you know is just a photo of the artist it's it doesn't do a whole lot for me um as a fan so right. uh i think that he whether he's a dying breed or not or just in between things 
call it what you want, but I think that it's important. Just my two cents. The uh, the well, thing let me interject there really quick. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, the way I found out about Dangerous Toys is just because of I saw that artwork as a kid, and I was like, that looks killer, you know. Like, and then yeah. I got it. I, I've been a fan ever since. Yeah, I've been nice. listening to Dangerous Toys since I've been probably ten years old. Nice. So it's like, yeah, well, it it proves the point a little bit. I mean, right. uh, you know, yeah. all, all, full full circle. I mean, Kiss Alive. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say exactly. Oh, all three of us here have probably bought records at the store without even knowing the music. We just had, we, we were pulled in by the visual and then you get home and decide whether or not you like the music. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, it predates like being able to preview everything online, you know, like you'd right. have to go to the record store, you'd see something that catches your eye. You might impulse buy it just because it looks so cool. Sometimes you're disappointed, but sometimes you find some gems that like none of your friends know about, you know, and like, you're like, check right. this band out you know and it you know it's cool it, it, really, it's very important a, especially at that time period for that's sure that's a great point that's a very great point that you just made that we that back in the day you didn't have an opportunity to preview stuff you couldn't find a clip online or whatever you had to buy you either already knew about it because you heard the record from your <clears> older <throat> brother or the neighbor or something exactly. like that or you were just going to roll the dice because the cover looked so cool we yep. we had a way from Voivod on the show, oh, and That's he was cool. telling us that uh, that was his experience with the first Iron Maiden record. Of course, you know, who can yeah. resist the first Iron Maiden record, you know, and of course he loved it. But uh, it just goes to prove my point that, you know, people of a certain age remember going into the record store and you'd be like, oh, something yeah. it got you got your attention you know it was a thing for me and, and a lot of my friends where if we even had a stupid job at you know age 17 uh we would spend our whole paycheck in the record store and it wasn't because we knew what anything sounded like oh i gotta get the new blah blah <laughs> it yeah. was kind of like you you found anything on metal blade records which usually yes. had fucking awful yes. you know paintings of like sorcerers and and, yeah. and vikings like and, the hollows eve cover with the, <laughs> with the executioner like painted Perfect. badly on the front it's, yeah, love that. or like a obsession you know uh, yeah. or uh, any totally. of it like uh, oz fire in the brain it's yeah, like you, yeah. you bought that because it had a skull on fire with it you know i don't know <laughs> even the first megadeth record is yeah. fucking awesome but there were not so awesome uh hand painted uh fantastical pieces painted for album covers on low budget at the time low budget i'm talking anything on metal blade records or mausoleum records or anything yeah, like that yeah. torrid records i mean uh case in point the first exodus record is one of my favorite thrash records of all time it just Absolutely. destroys and is still leaving a path of destruction in its wake but that album cover art is not so hot, <laughs> but I wouldn't have it any other way. Do you see what I mean? Yep. It's like right. what you yep. fall in love with is what you fall in love. As soon as it gets too pristine and perfect, you're like, no, 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 exactly. no, 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 no. And I know I'm speaking your language because yep. we're talking about, you know, uh, toxic Holocaust. So what I was getting at about the Repka story, uh, and I'm glad that, that Dave brought that up because it, I, I don't want to like divulge like price lists of how you pay artists. So let me just put it in a simple, perfect question. Do you feel like 
it was a fair price that he gave you for what you ended up with uh, for, you know, that record or, or what, who, how many records has he done for you? Covers. Just the one? Just one, but yeah, okay. I, I definitely think, I, I definitely, see, because here's what kind of happened after that sort of. Um, Let's don't mention price, you know, just. Unless you know, yeah, yeah, you no, the price it. was absolutely right. fair. Yeah, wow. 100%. I, I yeah, think good. it was definitely a fair price. I think what happened after that was, um, I don't think it had anything to do with us, but he started doing more record covers after that, you know, and at the time when I made the record after that, you know, it was kind of, I've always been kind of under like my philosophy sort of is, is everybody's doing something. I kind of don't want to do that, you know, like just to set what we're doing apart, you know, sure. kind of the opposite of what you would do to make any money pretty much. <laughs> but, um, you know, instead of just following what, like what you've been doing, like if, as soon as it becomes popular, kind of just change course. But, uh, once I started seeing more albums pop up with his artwork, I kind of just wanted to do something a little different. Some you know? people say just shoot yourself in the foot every time pretty it heals much. up. Just shoot yourself in the foot yeah. again. <laughs> That's pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, That's wow, okay. there could be some success here. Let's do something different. <laughs> no, bang, right in the toe. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, going back to the Texas connection, um, I wanted to ask you what it was like working with Power Trip because that record is phenomenal. Uh, Nightmare yeah. Logic. My son actually turned me on to them. Uh, you know, I'm living here in Texas and I've heard the name, but I never saw them live. Didn't own any of the records. My son discovered them, turned me on to them, and I was just blown away. And now I'm a big yes. Power Trip fan. But that Nightmare Logic record in particular is a masterpiece so how did you hook up with those guys and what was it like working on that album so we played with power trip years ago at red seven actually and i don't think it was kind of it was before you know they really took off you know and i you know i even liked them then but when they released that record um you know the uh the one before that what is it manifest uh decimation. destiny or decimation. decimation yeah and uh yeah that man that record really blew me away the production on that is like super reverby and i was like that, that's that's the stuff i love you know that kind of lots of effects and and just pretty much the opposite of like you know a good you know like like a what you would do to like have like a pristine recording you know like you know you record it well and then you add a bunch of effects on it to kind of make it sound insane you know but when i heard that i was like that's cool because that's you know that's right up my alley and um so i was a fan since then and then um you know, I was in touch with those guys and, uh, their producer, uh, Arthur Rizik, um, I think he reached out to me about mastering it or, or, or I, I might have that confused. I, it might've been Riley. I'm not sure. Somebody reached out to me about mastering it and I was obviously jumped at the opportunity because, uh, yeah, that was, um, yeah, an awesome record. And I'm happy to be a part of that. I feel very proud to have that part of my resume because, uh, you know, even just to be a small part, you know, to that that to that record is is you know it's a proud moment for me it's an amazing record yeah absolutely i uh, so, i think that it was quickly uh becoming legend and then with the passing of riley i feel like now it is legend so yeah. you could say it's uh it's got its own legs now yeah. and i do think that it's I, i'm happy that you're a part of it because uh uh, I just think that your connection with with this kind of music, I'll just say, uh, is is an important one, and and I'm just glad to be talking to you about it today. 
Well, I appreciate it, man. I, I really, uh, it's an honor to be on here. And, um, yeah, I've, I've, like I said, I've seen some of your stuff on YouTube before and I'm, I'm stoked to be a part of this for sure. Nice. Uh, to, to stick with the, <clears throat> this sort of mastering, how did you get into, oh, I'm going to master records. You know, how did, <laughs> how did that, because I mean, <laughs> I mean, I know, very i'm not gonna lie i i know very little about mastering but it just seems like you're just running the the mix through multiple eq uh you know some kind of like uh eq train if you will or you know yep. uh like a like a you've got this hooked up to this and this hooked up to this oh it needs a little <laughs> bit of this and it's a little bit mad yes. scientist go through uh, it is yeah in particular maybe uh this power trip record and what you felt like it sure. needed and what you, how you tweaked it and what yeah. was not necessarily wrong with it, but what, how you felt strongly it, what it needed. Just give us an idea of that. And of course, so, of course, of how you got into the idea of I'm going to master people's records. So basically it was, it kind of stemmed from it, Originally it started from me, you know, uh, I was recording bands locally here uh, in Portland Cause you know, I, like I told you the story about how I was recording bands when I was younger. Um, so I was like, well, that would be in between tours. This would be a, a cool thing to do because I do know how to do this stuff. So it would be cool to like, you know, record bands while, you know, I'm maybe have like a few months off. I can record a record and mix it and things like that. So it kind of, it was an offshoot of that basically, you know, because budgets of what they are now, um, a band would record with me and then I would mix the record. And then because of budgets not being, you know, that big, they would also have me master the record. So I'd basically have a, a total package. Um, well, for whatever reason, the mastering side of it really started taking off for me. Um, I guess bands would record, you know, other places and need that final touch. And, you know, I would end up just mastering it. And so that kind of just took off from there. So that that's kind of how I, I still mix, but mostly I master now because of the fact that I guess probably because of things like power trip and just some of the other stuff I've done just ended up doing that. But basically mastering, it's kind of like a black art in a way. A lot of people don't really know really what it is or why it's needed or whatever, but mastering is basically like a, for one, the main thing is it's a second set of ears on a mix. So, you know, if you mix in a room that maybe doesn't have the most ideal acoustics or, you know, whatever, um, which most studios don't, you know, like any, even major studios, you know, mixing in a major studio, it sometimes still needs a second set of ears just because that room sounds a good, like sounds good. Doesn't mean it'll sound good in your car or sound good here or there. Um, it just gives you that extra reassurance that it's going to translate to other, you know, your laptop or your phone and things like that. Um, and another very important part of mastering that people don't realize is it makes sure that when you press a record or press a CD or whatever, you're basically making the final, it's called a DDP for a CD. And yeah. it's basically, you're making sure that that's press ready. Like it has the, you know, the UPC codes embedded into it, it has like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the album any, title, the song any title. Kind of file, any kind of file information, it's a digital that's what DDP yes. is a digital production of, of yes. your entire life. Exactly. Exactly. It, it, it went into making that record in like a boop. Here it is. Yes. 
Yeah, it's one basically one folder that you just give a pressing plant and it has all of the information on it. And that's different than giving a pressing plant, you know, 10, you know, wave files or 10 whatever because they might press them out of order. They might it might it won't show your album title, won't show your song titles, you know, on when you put this disc in, you know, things like that. Um just a little stuff like that. Um and then the actual process of you know the mastering is, is it can go a lot of ways some some things you know arthur is an insane mixing engineer his stuff really didn't need a lot of work you know it wasn't there was i mean it was i think it was you know just a little bit of call it air you know just a little bit of like top end sheen on top and then you know and it's just stuff like you know sending it through an analog chain of like really expensive nice eqs and compressors stuff like that and you just pick you don't have to send it through a lot of stuff sometimes that's that's part of mastering too sometimes you hear stuff and you go this doesn't need a lot of work you know that's that's part that's a lot of it you don't want to alter things that sound good just because you know you're basically the the last chain before it gets pressed so you want to make sure you're doing stuff that is you makes it you know it's justice to the, the actual yeah. Thing. Because, you know, bands mix something, they want it to sound a certain way that you have a right. conversation with them, you go, okay, you know, what do you want this to sound like? I don't want to make, I don't want to clean it up too much if you're trying to go for a certain sound, you know, or I don't want to make this too, too loud or too quiet you know some bands want to retain those dynamics some someone at brick walled you know <laughs> like did arthur yeah. leave you leave you any room to like push some frequencies did he, sure. he left some room on there because a lot of bands just for yes. people listening a lot of bands will mix their shit so hot yes. like it's hitting the red already like i heard that uh death magnetic was yeah you know metallica was recorded so hot you know their master was just like you know and just totally and you know what that's badass that's fine yeah. if they want it to sound a certain way just be this like punch yeah that's fine but you can't master that because there's nowhere else to take it that's right you, you know, know i've had to actually send mixes back um not because of the way they sound because there was literally no headroom for me to do anything you know and you know i send stuff out to an analog chain and i recapture it with a you know it's kind of technical stuff but like i, I recapture it with a different converter so technically there's ways around that you know you don't have to just bring the, the volume down in the in the software you can actually send it through and then cap recapture it at a lower volume but when you record it that hot, you're clipping off a lot of the transients. So there isn't a lot of room anyway, you know, to do what you need to do. So, you know, my advice is to, you know, give me a, a little bit of headroom because, I mean, if you actually want this, you know, quote unquote mastered, you, you need to have some sort of, you know, cushion there for me to do something, you know. So. Yeah. And I, I also feel like when you're, when you're recording it's not always great to just peg the red it's good to have it be orange green yeah, orange yeah. level you can you can you can caress the red the first red light yeah yeah because you meter, know but you you shouldn't like go uh, go gonzo like you fucking want to yeah exactly you know? well you know what's hilarious is that you know that method of recording came from the analog days but yeah. most of the people recording now never grew up recording analog so it's funny that people still do that because 
you know, it made sense in the analog days. You're, you're trying to fight the noise floor. You don't want a lot of hiss and things like that. So you're, you're basically pegging it because if one, it sounds good when you do it in analog and two, you don't have as much noise to do it, especially in 24 bit recordings now. I mean, you can record really low and you don't have, you know, there used to be the thing in 16 bit where you're trying to get the bit depth maximized because you know you're actually recording at lower bit depth the, the quieter you record but with 24 bit it really you know you're not really going to hear that you know it's not really that big of a deal so to still be pegging stuff like that doesn't really make much sense anymore you know right well digital when you think about digital so, well even analog <clears throat> like for instance <clears throat> excuse me the and i'm not throwing anybody under the bus here uh, the, the guitar tone on Energetic Disassembly by Watchtower. So this is recorded in the mid-80s when people at the studios, if they recorded country and punk rock bands and singer-songwriter in Austin, Texas, they didn't really have like one way to do anything. It was just kind of yeah. going, well, it sounds good to me, you know, but they're just an engineer and they're not really producing. I mean, they're, yeah. they're a producer be- by because it's just a hat on the shelf that they put on. Right. But so, so that was recorded. And I apologize if I'm bursting any bubbles, but for, <laughs> for anybody, but that guitar tone was recorded from a sun solid state head plugged into a PVSP one PA cabinet. Wow. Mic'd up. And that is just like, it's cutting your head off as far as the high end and buzz. And I think it was just, I think it was a rat pedal or something. It was just distortion pedal, which if you check all that off, you think about the kind of music that the extreme, the early extreme music, that might sound like an awesome guitar tone for guitar players of a certain ilk you know who love yeah. oh, i bet that sounds incredible you know wow oh, that's awesome because the lo-fi thing is a thing as you know bathory and yourself and just that lo-fi thing can be badass but later yeah. on in hindsight maybe not for billy white and watchtower because of the kind of music it was but when you're a right. teenager and you don't know shit yet and your your bedroom tone is trying you trying to recreate that in a studio is always a learning curve. And so, you know, in recording in the red digitally, it's like very little distortion, either analog and like in the end product, it's going to add gain. It's going to add yeah. that crushing high end distortion. <laughs> just natural distortion to your guitar tone. Yep. Now I feel like some of those early Slayer records are, it. it's still okay. I think that they did a brilliant job, Bill Matoyer and them. I think that they did a brilliant job of recreating their those guys, what those guys wanted. Uh, and then by the time they recorded, uh, of course, the legendary Rain and Blood, Yeah, whoever was the engineer on that, didn't let them bring in their rat pedal or their boss, yeah. you know, their orange boss pedal, their heavy metal pedal. They were like, leave that out of the chain. Let's go in yeah. direct like Angus Young and let's record yep. what your fucking amp sounds like. Your guitar in your fucking yeah. amp. Let's do that. And oh my God, to hear yeah. extreme metal music, you know, Slayer, uh, 
recorded that way makes me very yeah. happy. You hear every fucking yeah. note played. It's yeah. not being held back by, uh, as we all love, the lo-fi, is everything yes. fighting each other in the mix or the, the whatever. Rain and Blood is like a Bible to uh, what we're talking 100%. about. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, my main amp is a JCM 800, just like Carrie and you know sure. Jeff. And the the I think people are actually surprised when they first plug into an 800 how little gain those actually have. There's My like point. almost, I mean, it, it's it's like almost ACDC territory, mm -hmm. like tone, you know, when you, when you plug in. But so you really have to dig in. You know, they used hot pickups, EMGs, and stuff. And when you have that, you know, you take the rat out. You know, you take the tube screamer out, and it's just like you're just getting the notes, you know? So it, but you know, it's something weird about the less gain you use on a recording, the almost the heavier it sounds in certain ways, because it's yeah, more, I'm just, I'm just, just to be clear, live is different. Okay. Put as many yes. fucking heavy metal pedals in your chain as, as you fucking want. Yeah. But the point is, yeah. is in the studio, it's kind of like a, a different animal and sometimes even uncomfortable for, God, for everyone to record, like what you hear in your headphones, what you hear through your amp, oh, that's not what I'm used to at all. Until you understand that's going to come later. Like that, yeah, the, exactly. the, the metal, the, the emotional, like, ah, destroy, that's going to happen later. And not necessarily what people are suggesting to you in your earliest experiences recording. So exactly, my hat's off to you for... For coming from like that, at, at, I'll use it again, the Bathory way, the bedroom tone, uh, yeah. and, and, and using it too, uh, to your advantage to create what you fell in love with uh, when you're writing Toxic Holocaust material. Um, and I feel you know like <clears throat> Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was, I was going to say, you know, it's funny because it, piggybacking off your story about, you know, recording with people that maybe weren't familiar with metal and stuff and, you know, like a country producer or whatever, like, and getting unique tones, like with the Watchtower stuff. And it, I think a lot of the early records all sounded very unique because metal was something that people weren't familiar with how to record up until Rain and Blood, things like that. So it was like, a lot of those earlier records just all have none of them sound the same, you know, and that kind of is cool, you know, and that yeah. that's my philosophy for, for recording because I like the unique aspect of those records and just records in general. You know, I, I draw from a lot of different influences. Like for instance, like, I don't know if you're familiar with a band called guided by Vo guided by voices, but yeah. they were lo-fi. I mean, they were like, they actually, I think coined the term for being like a style of music as lo-fi. You know, and that was all recorded very weirdly and experimentally on like four tracks and stuff. And, you know, I'm influenced by that and like Bathory, but also really, you know, like I said, David Bowie recordings and, and very good productions, too. So I like just records that have unique characteristics, you know, and a lot of bands are I've noticed from recording them and stuff, they're afraid to kind of do that or break outside of the mold of like what's, you know, acceptable in metal recordings now. Like everybody kind of chases that. This is no shade on Andy Sneap because I love his 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 records sound amazing. Oh, yeah. But people, a lot of people are afraid to do stuff that doesn't match up to his level of production, you know. And it's like, you know, he's Andy Sneap. If you want a record that sounds like Andy Sneap, go to Andy Sneap. You know, it's like I like stuff that all kind of sounds unique, you know, different, you know, um, different uh, 
you know, just disgusting sometimes, you know, just sure. weird things that kind of give records a characteristic, you know? Yeah. It, it doesn't have to be, it's metal. It doesn't have to be safe. You know, it can be that's unique a, and weird and, and aggressive, you know? That's a great point. And, and I'm probably the, the guy in this room that has no clue what's being discussed as far as recording and, and sound and all that. I'm, I'm more of a consumer. I'm not a musician and I'm certainly not a studio engineer or whatever. But you just made a really valid point uh, when like speed metal was in its infancy, there weren't a lot of reference points. So everybody was kind of, and there was geographical distance and the internet wasn't exactly. around. So everything, I love that you brought up that point that everything was kind of, it was a work in progress. It was an experiment and each album was kind of localized to its environment. And then once the genre becomes a genre, and you have reference points like you have rain and blood or you have ride the lightning and then the upcoming bands say i want to sound like that then you start to fall into this formula but earlier yeah. prior to that what you were saying is that's exactly why a possessed record sounds different than you know the exodus album or whatever there's slight variations yep. because the formula hadn't been uh yep. mastered yet I and like that. for instance like you know bill mcthoyer recorded a ton of those metal blade bands but they all kind of sound different because they weren't all using the same gear they were kind of using just whatever they had you know and that that also is another point like a lot of people use the same stuff like you know most people use like a 5150 and a mesa cab and and the tube screamer and everybody has that same guitar tone and it's like it's a great sound but there's nothing really that sets it apart from the next band's sound yeah. whereas you know you use a, a sun solid state amp which i have by the way i have a, a an amp called a sun beta lead i don't know if it was that that's amp, what but, it was uh, that's what it awesome. was i love that it was they're a great, they're great. It was a beta lead. use that too it was a beta lead plugged into a uh a, a pvsp1 pa cabinet that's so, amazing good next time you're at the pawn shop and you find an sp1 you're like oh, oh i can recreate billy white's tone <laughs> exactly assembly. like energetic disassembly if i wanted to <laughs> not saying you would want to so joel but you know it's funny you. that's what makes it things unique you know that yeah, that's yeah, yeah. that's what's cool about it not everybody was using the same stuff people right. heard things differently different engineers that didn't necessarily know how to capture the stuff makes things you know some of it doesn't necessarily sound good quote unquote but it sounds unique you know yeah, it's like yeah and that's cool too that's that's very interesting i would have never put that together because i'm just not in that world like the two of you guys are but now that you say that uh it makes perfect sense and i'll you know whenever i listen to one of those records i'll keep that in mind that yeah this that, there's a unique quality to this album because yeah. this genre wasn't yet turned into a formula because it was all still in its infancy. Let me ask you to your ears with your experience, what would you say is the best sounding from a production standpoint, metal album that we would all be familiar with? I mean, I would probably say the black album from Metallica. Wow. That's pretty much, I would say the peak of like what you could really do realistically with, you know, budget and, things like that i mean that record probably cost who knows how much that record cost probably millions like that like by today's standards for sure um i mean when you see it if you if you watch the you know year and a half in life metallica the studio half of that when they're 
carting around in a van, like all just those two inch reel to reels. I mean, that would be thousands and thousands of dollars just in tape used on yeah. that record, you know, and going to different studios and, you know, the top of the line facilities, Bob Rocks, you know, you know, budget and stuff like that, that record had to cost so much, but I mean, it's, it still stands up today. It was, you know, was yeah. it 91 or whatever that came out? That's yeah. it still sounds like a fresh record and people are still trying to capture that kind of drum sound and, and things like that today and can't do it. You know, it's, it's I, I would say for the, you know, for an actual like best, like if you actually wanted to use it as, in a term of like, like fidelity wise, for sure, that record, I, I would say would be the top. You can hear wow. every note. Yes. And every note yeah. sounds like the money sound. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, the yep. kick drum, the kick drum is super sweet. Yep. Uh, you can hear Jason's bass. Sometimes you have to really lean in to hear Jason's bass, but yeah. he's killing it. And yeah. uh, I love the guitar playing. The guitar tones are great. No, yeah. it's not. It's not my. You know, we're not talking about if it's our favorite Metallica record. No, that's that a whole right. other. No. That's a whole other show. But right. I think that professional ears. Uh, that's a very good uh, sort of throw at Dave's question. Now, <clears throat> I can't stop, and this this should be fun for us to talk about for two seconds. Could it be that Lars, I'm just throwing Lars under the bus for a quick second, <clears throat> which is easy to do, I guess, for some people. I love Lars, but Lars... I love Lars, too. I hate when people say it should have been Lars. I, I love Lars. I think he's amazing. That doesn't... I, it's like, what? What are, you, what are you talking about? You're wishing some yeah. terrible shit upon someone you don't really know. Lars, to, to talk about that just for one second... Uh, any other drummer in Metallica, it wouldn't be Metallica. He doesn't play like anybody else. No, no one plays like him. Would they nope. want to? He's kind of random. You know what I mean? But I love I think, it. I love his drumming. I oh think his God. drumming totally fits. He learned all that shit from Ian Pace and, yep. you know, big, dumb, terribly, terrible sounding New Wave of British Heavy Metal demos from bands we I can't remember. Yeah. Praying Mantis, you know, whoever. Yeah, exactly. So my, my point is, <laughs> is did Lars hear Dr. Feelgood and go, oh my God, this sounds fucking amazing because, hold on a second, era specific to 89, 90, and that Motley record comes out and you hear, and he's like, whoa, hold on a second. That's fucking churning heavy. That's like more human than human. That's like, you know, dude, yeah. something Mick Mars did on that record. Like when people went with say what? And yeah, it sounded nice. amazing. All of these things come flying into my brain oh, as to I, why, why Bob Rock's like stock rose that year. That's I the, agree. That's I, the story. They've, I mean, Metallica has has admitted it all along. They said we heard this. It was. They even said it was something like befriending the enemy because it's like, oh my yeah. god, Motley Crue has the best sounding album I've ever heard. We want that sound. And so, yeah. don't tell anybody we're using the guy that did the Motley <laughs> Crue record, or that we're going to have him on retainer for like a mill a year <laughs> right. until the record's exactly. done. You know, exactly. I mean, if you listen to those records back to back, they don't really sound that much different. I mean. They, you oh. know the drum sound but i mean like the 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 way the drums are like mixed and things like that it it, it makes a lot of sense like the low yeah. end is very similar to, to those records together you know it's like i mean 
you know, it, you know, it, uh, sad but true, and like Doctor Feel Doctor Feelgood, like those two songs. You know, they have like a similar like, low end to them. You know, like, they're they're touching. Those two songs yeah. are kind of touched. Dude, it's a trip, drop D. You know, because I can yeah. hear it in my head right now. I can <laughs> yes. hear both of those songs playing at the same time. Going, yup, yes, yup, that sounds right. Yep. I wanted to go. Oh, it makes weird. sense. I bet hearing that, you know, hearing that come out, you're probably like, that record sounds better than everything else on the radio right now. Yeah. You know, oh, Dr. Yeah. Feelgood. And and you made the point too that the black album still sounds like a uh, a state of the art recording today, all these years yes. later. And I think you could probably say the same about Dr. Feelgood. So yeah, the, for yeah. sure. I want to switch gears for a second. Let's just throw a curveball at you. Do you remember sending me this "Don't Burn the Witch" compilation? I don't remember probably, sending it. I remember releasing don't. it. I don't remember sending it. You probably. When was that? Don't. When did I send that? Like 2010-ish. <clears throat> Dude, I don't know. Do you, are you familiar? You're familiar with this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. This has, uh, of course, Toxic Holocaust. It has Minotaur from Germany. Yeah, uh, and a Swiss band called uh, Goat Messiah, <laughs> and it has Evil Angel, which I love yep. their logo. God, their logo is great, and their their Finland, awesome. they're from they're from Finland, and your address here says Maryland still, so you were still young, yeah. and this has a song was Ar called Army of One was Army. Of, this is a yeah. forty five. It's a ten inch. See, so here's the twelve. Here's a ten. The artwork is fucking phenomenal. Obviously, it's yeah. kind of, it's a borrowed piece of art. Borrowed one, yeah. yeah someone yeah, took this out of fits. a library book, you know, <laughs> with Salem witch trial photo, you know, drawings. Uh, I love it. I love it so much. <clears throat> uh, heavy speed compilation, and that title is in chrome print with the upside down cross. Uh, I, I fucking love shit like this. Me too. Um, Army of One is that coinciding with this or is it like demo material basically demo yeah it was something that um i had oh, i have to uh, mention your shirt you have the sodom this, oh, yeah. this, is, this is joel you're wearing the sodom shirt which is perfect. huge fan huge yeah. fan obviously <laughs> uh yeah that was i i i would say that one was probably recorded like 2004 ish because army so it was one a little is bit not after that Army of One is not on this. So this is after. Yeah. This is after. Okay. That was a demo that was possible. That was a song that I was working on that was potentially going to be on Hell on Earth that didn't end up making it to Hell on Earth. But I was I was during that writing session for that. So okay, I probably would have been 2004-ish, but I never ended up recording it for Hell on Earth. So Okay. Oh, well, <clears throat> I'll apologize. Those two pieces are my only toxic holocaust that I have that are tangible. Send you a care package. Hold in my hand. Oh, and I'll do the same, of course. Now, the, the idea that you have like, I don't know, 20 fucking albums out now. <laughs> How many toxic <laughs> records are there now? There's a lot. Yeah, there's a shit ton. I, for full lengths, I think, what is it? Well, I'm working on the seventh. So there's six okay. out there. Okay. And I mean, seven inches, you know, every, I, there's a ton of, of vinyl, just seven inches, 10 inches, things like that. I mean, there's a shit ton of stuff out there. I, I don't even know. I haven't even begun to think about how many are out there, but there's a lot. If you look on Discogs, it's pretty impressive. I was like, 
because you know sometimes you know releasing so much stuff i forget you know and there was somebody who was referencing something and i was like i don't even remember that so i looked on di- my own discogs I was like oh shit yeah i remember that now so well, that's why I, yeah that's why i kind of wanted to bring up those these early pieces here that that's like i said all i have uh tangible anyway um uh, and that's and and it's and I'm kind of proud of those pieces because uh, you when I saw it now's a good time to bring this up the the evil never dies uh, I believe you you gave to me in person when we met which was two oh god two thousand three two thousand five when was that was when that, was when did we, we when, midnight. Yeah, when did you do the midnight tour? I believe, okay, I could be wrong, but I believe that was 2006. Okay. So that would make sense. Yeah, I yeah. think it was 2006. Okay. So, yeah, would have been then. And and so I remember that, that. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, that, so you were at room 710 uh on Red River. Um I think that was I wearing like my Rob Halford outfit? Was I just? I probably would have remembered that. I don't think so. I don't think. Okay, because I feel like I saw you again at some point. Yeah, you would have remembered that. Maybe I'm confusing it with something else. And the reason you might have had the leather vest on. You might have had the vest on. Okay, but the reason that I even the hat. I would remember the hat. I feel like (laughs) see, there's. You sure you don't remember it? Because you know people don't think of. Yeah, it's a certain era of Judas Priest. Yes. That, that you wouldn't have a problem associating me with because I'm old school. Uh, that if I was going to do a Judas Priest tribute, which that's that's where where I'm going with this, is I think mm-hmm. that my my Sad Wings, my my Priest tribute, had a gig the same night, and I want to say that I was at the show with some of my gear yeah. on because I was playing across the street or something. I remember you telling me that you were playing that night. I, I just I don't remember. Okay. But that, it's been a while ago. So it's possible. But you would think in my mind I would have remembered that. But the London Leather Boy look that I had, for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the bull whip was close by. <laughs> my, awesome. uh, my my village people costume, you probably would have fucking remembered that shit, dude. <laughs> but I I seem to recall that I was playing across the street. Yeah. yeah. I do remember that you telling me that for sure. Yeah. So yeah. And now no, let's talk about this. This is interesting because you're you know, we mentioned the the one man band thing on your early releases, um, recorded in your bedroom and and uh now you master worldwide releases for underground metal songs, which is metal records, which is fantastic. Um you, you were on tour and I, you can correct me, but I remember like you, it was just you and the Midnight Guys, which is a trio. Mm-hmm. And you, you were up on stage with what I saw as your band, because I didn't know a whole lot about Midnight either at the mm-hmm. time. And then I see, you know, and it was fucking awesome. And then you guys leave the stage. And then I see your band put the hoods on and come out as Midnight. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It was the same. Yep. You're swapping band members. Yeah. Yeah. So it's midnight is your backing band. Tell us a little bit about, I mean, that was so long ago and now you have your own thing, of course. And this was early inception of, of, or somewhat of uh, toxic Holocaust and midnight. Were they, 
you were a fan, you were friends, they're yeah. from Ohio. You, how did that tour come about so long ago? And the idea like, well, I don't have a band. We'll be your band. We'll learn your songs. Did you rehearse? You know, tell us yeah. a little bit about that. So here's a weird thing. So basically, um, you know, I was in contact with Athenar, <laughs> you know, from uh, Jamie. Midnight. Jamie. Jamie. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know if he wanted me to spill the beans or not, but yeah, uh, you know, I, I say everybody Jamie, knows now, but yeah, out there. yeah. everybody yeah. knows now, but uh, yeah, Jamie from midnight. I, I was in contact with him um, just because I was a fan, you know, like I got that. It was like the very first seven inch they released. And uh, you know, that once I heard that, I was like, this is amazing. But talking to him, I realized he's a solo project too. So he did all that stuff by himself, yeah. just like I did. And I was like, that's instant kindred spirits, you know, cause that, that's, that's super cool. Um, so that actually kickstarted because we toxic had an offer to do a Canadian tour. And there was a band called Rammer up there. Um, that's a band that should have been bigger than they were. They kind of fizzled out before they, the whole thrash thing really took off, but they were kind of like, in that time period in between you know when you know thrash wasn't here back yet and but they were amazing you know and but you know friends with those guys um they invited us to go up there and do a tour with them so the drummer of rammer played in in toxic at that time and jamie being a bass player i asked if he would want to go up there and do the tour with toxic and uh he was surprisingly, he was into it, you know, and cause he didn't know me that well, you know? So I was like, that's cool that he was down to do it. Um, and, uh, we did a midnight song then, you know, in that, on that tour where I played guitar and, uh, he sang, you know, but, um, I don't think, yeah, we didn't do hood. He didn't do hoods on that. Just okay. that one song. So it was like, okay. un, like a hoodless. Midnight. Okay. Um, so that kind of happened that way. And then when, you know, Midnight had a tour, you know, we did it with Toxic as well and kind of, it was the same lineup. So it was Al, the drummer of Rammer did that tour, you know, for both bands. Okay. So it was the same lineup in Canada and, you know, but there was Midnight this time. So if that makes sense, it was basically, that's how that kind of happened later on down the road. Um, the bass player of Rammer ended up being the longtime bass player of Toxic, uh, Phil, and uh, he he was in the band for years and years. Uh, those guys were Canadian, so it was difficult having Canadians in the band. You know, there's visas and all that other shit. So, yeah, kind of make a long story short there, but yeah, that's kind of how that all how that all happened. So yes, it was Midnight and Toxic basically being the same band at one point. Cool. That's, a, that's a tour I'd like to see happen again. Uh, that would yeah. be a great show. Toxic and, and Midnight. That'd be an awesome build. That'd be amazing. Yeah, that would be very cool. Yeah. Now, I never got to wear the hood, though. So that's my only <laughs> thing. I, I never got to don the hood. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about something I saw on your website that just jumped out at me. Um, uh, you were involved in a project, and it's described as lo-fi satanic rap. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what was that all about? So that was, um, I basically, it was just a, uh, it's a compilation of these like Memphis rap demos, like that were from the early nineties that I, I just basically cleaned up and remastered and stuff. And I had no involvement with the, the recording or anything like that, but they're like all these like underground rappers that were like, basically, you know, it was pre 
three, six mafia type stuff where it was all satanic rap stuff. And it was just a very interesting scene to me that I thought was really cool that not a lot of people knew about that. I basically just compiled a bunch of songs from that scene, you know, unauthorized. Like I didn't have contact with anybody. I basically just made a compilation and uploaded it to YouTube. And surprisingly enough, that really took off and uh, a rap label in uh, again, another Texas tie in Houston released like one of those like underground rap cassettes of a compilation that compilation which i thought was very cool wow is that still available can you find that anywhere it's on still on youtube uh the tape is long gone but and what's it called if someone wanted to look this up it's called uh memphis devil shit (laughs) that's right that's right that's right memphis devil shit yeah, I thought it was. I've never heard of the genre satanic rap. So yeah, like, what is this? Yeah, I always thought that was very interesting because it's like that's not something you really hear. You know, like the the name Three Six Mafia. It's like Six 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 Mafia. Yeah. So yeah. it's like it, it comes from that scene where they they have a, what what I, really drew me to it was they use a lot of like horror movie soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Uh, samples like for like you know they'll they'll loop a John Carpenter like keyboard lick with a with a you know 808 kick drum underneath and it's just weird and interesting and super super lo-fi and yeah it, it's it, you should check it out it's pretty it's pretty weird yeah cool. i just saw that on your website and it jumped out at me so i had to ask you yeah no i'm i'm not rapping <laughs> you don't no, want to hear that I, I i knew you were sort of uh I, I knew you weren't actively participating in the creation of the music i knew it was something you were overseeing as sort of a, a producer or something or or at least just compiling the tracks and putting them together it was just yeah it was just uh yeah like i said unauthorized it was just something that i really was interested in i thought it was very unique and not a lot of people knew about so i kind of just found a lot of these demo tracks and just cleaned it up a little bit and you know took out some of the hiss and stuff like that and just compiled it into one like solid <laughs> compilation well, it sounds yeah, like fun cool. I, I don't want to say you have too much time on your hands but you know <laughs> yeah that's something that you that you felt passionate about too you you have a a big hand like very big hand in in the the underground period i feel like you are kind of like you know one of those guys quote uh that keeps the flag flying keeps you know you you're not obviously you're not in it for it's not monetary uh it's not you know you're you have a black heart for it uh, yeah, in every way yeah. and it's just impressive and i'm just i just you know thank all of the metal gods that for for you and 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 you know and and people like jamie too and and people who are totally yeah. just you know and i know that there's a slew of uh of your tribe uh out there that do it and let me ask you a a personal question if i if i may the idea Perfect. behind what it is that you're that you're what you do just who you are um and not limited to who you are <clears throat> but uh this and this goes with that what you know what do you do for money can you divulge do you have a day job do you have disposable jobs so you can go on the road do you make enough money recording and mastering and things like that is it let's talk about you as a a human on earth who's paying 
mortgage or rent or family bills and blah blah blah. What is what what is what is Joel up to for that part of life? Yeah, I mean, honestly, the especially when the pandemic hit, um, that really hit hard because you know the majority of my money comes from touring, you know, and when I'm not on the road, you know, there's not a whole lot of money coming in. Um, especially that ties into studio work because you know bands aren't on the road they're not making records that you know they're going to be in limbo sort of so that that was a hit you know to me for sure you know don't, i don't have much of a savings you know things like that so when things like that happen it's like you get you know it kind of almost panic mode a little bit but um yeah you know honestly like touring uh doesn't i don't make a ton of money doing that but it, it's enough to get by but okay. that's a big reason why when I get back off the road, I'm right back in the studio doing, you know, production work and things like that. So mainly that, you know, I, I would say it's about 50-50 now for my income, um, production work and touring. So, okay. which is good because, you know, my my main goal for the studio stuff is, you know, I'm not getting any younger, you know, you know, get, approaching mid 40s, you know, things like that. So I want to have some sort of, plan you know so that when i get older i don't necessarily have to be on the road constantly to you know have a you know some sort of income and also still get to do what i like to do you know and that that's m money is good you know obviously money is important but for me my kind of outlook has always been i would rather not make as much money and enjoy my life and enjoy what i'm doing still be responsible you know not living off of like assistance and things like that i still want to be you know responsible for my own things yeah but still enjoy what i'm doing and that was i always kind of walked that line of how can i do that while still maintaining integrity and and things so you know i've just been fortunate really and also being solo you know like if you look at all the records i've done by myself you know um I'm not splitting royalties between, you know, four or five guys, you know, it's just yeah. me. So that helps as well. I mean, there isn't a ton of royalties, obviously any band will tell you, even if you sell a ton of records, there's not a crazy amount of royalties, especially today's day and age, but you know, that helps, you know, um, just things like that. I've, I've done, you know, some production work for movies and, and things like that. There's, there's little tricks and little, you know, it's important to have a diverse set of, revenue streams you know if you put all your eggs in one basket like just the touring stuff you might be in trouble at some point you know like the touring might go away again like you know a pandemic or like you know things like that well you're 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 gonna clock in at starbucks yeah when you get home from tour you're gonna clock in at starbucks yeah yeah exactly. so so exactly. i get to have to you have to be on your feet all the time you when you're home off the road you're gonna be like okay well I'm going to get up and uh, put some feelers out because, you know, I got to pay rent. Yeah. 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 A, a yeah. Great question. We should ask that question more often on the, on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, and I, I do like to know, I do like to know the other side of the, you know, the public basically sees the persona. And in the case of Joel, mm -hmm. we're familiar with his albums and his album covers and his music and the videos and that sort of thing. But we don't really know what Joel does, <laughs> you know, to, yeah. to pay the rent. And I, I think that's always cool to, to get a glimpse inside the personality. Well, it can be, uh, you know, it can be, it can be kind of scary sometimes when you when all you're going to do is music related stuff. 
Yeah, that's yeah. Now, but yeah. you know, oh, absolutely. Not, it's not about me, but I work for a corporate company, and I, I get as many hours as I feel like I want with this company, and it's it's right. music related, sure, but it that's my Starbucks. It doesn't matter what the fuck right. job you have, as long as you can go to sleep at night and and be an artist. Doesn't I don't care how right. you you survive, uh, be as long as you live true to your art so the exactly you know, that's that's the play but the fact it's impressive man that you are you have enough uh uh you irons know, in the fire yeah but it's all related to this thing yeah. and and uh comes back to uh the talents that you have pretty much not gone to i mean did you go to college to learn how to do what it is you're doing fuck no that's my huh. point so you're a self-made yeah. personality on uh, all. I, I hate to just say that you're you're because it makes me think that that it's you're have this small world uh, when you say like underground heavy music, you know, <laughs> to make it generic enough. That still sounds kind of small. It doesn't feel like you're you're fanning out right. to uh, a, a enough uh, places to make enough money to groceries rent you know keep the lights on but the yeah, fact that you're surviving and doing it is 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 impressive and i just i thought it was a good a good question for someone like you especially yeah man you know what's funny too it's like you just can't be afraid of hard work you know it's like the, the thing is it's like just because i'm doing what i like to do doesn't mean i i don't work hard either i think people get that conception sometimes too when you know if you're a musician or whatever it's like you're basically taking an easy way out like you know when i'm on the road i'm still setting up stuff to to record when i get home you know it's like it's still going to that yeah. you know starbucks like i'm basically making sure i have something to go home to because you know i still need to pay the bills you know it's like the yeah. i know that this tour isn't going to pay my bills for the next time like till the next time we tour you know i gotta have stuff lined up and you know I'm fortunate enough now where I'm in a position where, you know, I sometimes have to turn away work because I have so much, um, you know, production work to do, which is a great feeling. And, that, and that's, that's where you want to be, you know, for this kind of thing. You want to basically be, you can almost, I, I'm not quite at the point where I can just pick and choose, like, this is the project I want to do. This is the project, you know, I still have to do some of the jobs that I don't necessarily you know, don't necessarily love the music as much, you know, but um, I'm still getting to do what I love overall, you know, and that's, yeah. that's, oh, yeah. that was always important to me, but I don't begrudge anybody that has to work the regular jobs either. I think, you know, I, I respect hard work by anybody. I don't care what they're doing, you know, I, I respect it regardless, you know, and it's like, do what you got to do, you well, know, I, res I respect it, intellectual property. And however you dole out your intellectual property, even if it's, man, I make a badass Americano. You yeah, know what I mean? I totally. make a badass cappuccino. Intellectual totally. properties are intellectual properties. And the fact that some way to put it, can, I agree, yeah, man. Yeah. Can the, the, way, the way that you slice it is however you want to slice it. Now, the fact that, again, I'm beating this like a dead horse, but the fact that you can just do uh this music related that someone that somewhat fits your passion that's amazing and my hat's off to you are you working I on new material that. 
Yeah, I was just going to yes. ask, what's the status of uh, what's the status of toxic holocaust? And if 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 your new material is outside of toxic, then tell us about that as well. Kind of bring us up to your current. And mention your website, and how the, all that shit. Put it all out there. Shameless plug time. Sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah, uh, working. Uh, the new record is basically written. Uh, I got a couple more lyrics. I got to finish up, but uh, it's written. Uh, I'm going to start recording probably in a week or two, and. Uh, Unfortunately, pressing times, you know, for vinyl and all that stuff is so backlogged. It takes a while for it to actually come out. So I'm hoping, you know, maybe mid next year, I, you know, I'm hoping, you know, so it's a whole thing, you know, you got to do the whole cycle of promotion and stuff leading up to it and all that. So hoping mid mid next year, it'll be out and um, yeah, it, it'll be coming out on uh it's called uh E1, which I released uh, the record on last time. And um yeah, just keeping busy, you know, always writing new stuff, uh, even if it doesn't see the light of day, have hard drives and hard drives full of stuff that nobody's ever heard, you know, but, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's, it's an archive just, you know, I, that's another nice thing is, uh, I still have the passion of, I still love doing it, you know, so like, I still write songs just for fun, you know, even if they don't even, not for an, in, you know, intended purpose, just to, just to have them or keep my chops up or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, the website, you know, I'm not super active on there. I need to update it. I'm actually uh, planning on doing that soon, but it's just joelgrind.com. Um, that's that's where you can get in touch for me for the studio stuff. There's a contact form on there, um, you know, and just the us usual places. Uh, I'm more active on Instagram. So that's like the Toxic Holocaust official uh, Instagram um, and my personal one, Joel Grind is just the name on that. And uh, yeah, just try to, I stay a little bit more busy on that just because Facebook kind of, kind of sucks, you know, I only go on there if I have to, you know? Yeah. It's messy. Well, I, I always enjoy having someone on the show who is able to chase their passion and, and make it, uh, uh, feasible for them to support themselves. Um, and if that means you have a hand in many, many different small things, then great. Uh, I've always admired people that would rather do that than have one big secure thing, but they hate it, you know, <laughs> so, oh, absolutely. Yeah. so hats off to you. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important, uh, you know, always to have for anybody, really. I mean, even if you have a regular job, it's nice to have a couple revenue streams, you know, just in case you never know what, what could happen with anything, you know, and um, if, you know, I guess my advice to anybody is kind of, try to have maybe just a little bit of income coming from different places, you know, even if it's just a, you know, you release a record and you can do a, you know, sell t-shirts on a website or something. It's nice just to have a little bit here and there, even just for pocket change, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the DIY Absolutely. thing, you're, you're a king of that. And, and that's good. I think it goes back to the, you know, the headbangers learned it from the punk rock people. That's what I was going to say. Actually, I, you brought th that, that, that was the point I was going to make. It's funny because Going back to my time where, you know, I started Toxic, didn't have a lot of people that wanted to play thrash stuff. I grew up with more, you know, the punk scene. So I learned my DIY stuff from that, you know? So that's, oh, yeah. I think, a big factor in why it is the way it is for Toxic because I've learned my, you know, at the time, especially metal bands, you know, they had like the the manager doing stuff, the booking agent, this, this, this. And, you know, when I started, you know, I have some of that stuff now, but starting, you know, when 
starting out, you don't need all that stuff. You can do it yourself. It just depends on how much, <laughs> how much you want to learn and how, how busy you want to make yourself, you know, but you can do it all yourself for sure. Yeah. I have a final yeah. question. Um, at some point, <clears throat> I feel like your story is super interesting, especially uh, for people who are, you know, just uh, extreme music fans or, you know, metal or punk or any, any just, just, you know, what, what it is that you do, because it's kind of multifaceted. It's, it's loud. You're loud, right? Um, <laughs> I feel like the, um, I feel like where I'm going with this is, you know, it'd be interesting to, to, to see your story in a, in a hardback, in a book, in book form. Your story is, wow. you probably had new, I don't know. So, you know, you know, one day I never thought I of that. a book about my, well, it's pretty cool, man. It's pretty cool. And I think that, uh, it yeah, it probably wouldn't be a bestseller. Uh, but no. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like there's, there's unique ways to, and you're, you're very, uh, you know, DIY. Um, I just think that, you know, it would be a great idea. Have you, but obviously you hadn't thought about it. And I just making oh. that suggestion to be really cool. That's, a, that's If you think someone would be interested in that, that, that might be something to look into. I think that's, that, that would be pretty cool. You know, well, I think that the older, I, I, I think if anything the, just for, because, you know, I, I would like to inspire some people just to do things that maybe they're afraid to do, you know, just because, I know a lot of, you know, I, you know, especially now doing this for so long, there's kids that, you know, come to our shows that are like 15, that the toxic is older than them, you know, which is mind blowing to me, but the band itself is older than the kids coming to the shows now. Well, and, and a lot take, of them don't take do this the wrong way. Similar to me. Don't take this the wrong yeah. way, but I feel like you're 40, you're not yeah. 60, you're 40. <laughs> so the people, <laughs> yeah. And you're the the things that you're into and and that you've created since you know, uh, you know the the late nineties, you know ish, um, are from an old an older like, are you the young guy in your band? Are you the young guy at the show? And then so when you meet someone even younger than you, it's kind of like whoa. Yes. So like a 15 year old yeah. wearing a Bathory shirt is like, whoa, wait a minute. What's going on here? You know, that comes from somewhere. And I think that you have something to do with it. it yeah. You know, what's funny is that when Toxic started and, you know, we started gaining some traction and stuff. We had a lot of skepticism from the older people because they were like, you know, this is like retro bullshit or whatever. And it's like, it, it's funny because they don't know you know, now I don't get that as much because of the longevity of the band. Like, obviously <laughs> I'm not a poser at this point. Like who, right. who would pose for that many years, you know, like right. with basically no monetary like incentive, you know, it's like, would make absolutely no sense. That's what I but, love uh, about it. But you know, it's like at the time, you know, any, especially in metal, people were skeptical at first, you know, until you kind of prove yourself and, you know, I never wanted to be like that. You know, when I see kids, even with they're wearing like, you know, whatever corny van shirt, you know, that, you know, you know, that you might make fun of in the van, you know, like there might be like a kid comes up to you and is into the band. I was never going to be that dude that would be like, why are you wearing that shirt poser? You know, like stuff like that. I never wanted to be like that. You know, like yeah. I always wanted to be inclusive to kids that are getting into this stuff because 
you know, I had to kind of go through that a little bit. And also, you know, everybody has a starting point, you know, like you might <laughs> get into heavy music through something that might be, you know, looked at by us as lame, you know, but it gets you that it plants that seed for cool stuff later, you know, so I never wanted to be like that, you know, and yeah, I think, you know, I have that soft spot for younger kids coming to the shows and, you know, getting into this kind of music because, you know, I was there, you know, I, I was like, you know, getting looked at by the older dudes as being like, you know, skeptic skepticism, I would say, you know, and sure. Yeah. Well, it, it, Paul Bailoff comes to mind and the kill yeah. all posers and posers must die. And the, yeah. the kids at the show who just walked in cause they love heavy metal wearing a Motley Crue shirt or something, yeah. they're going to get hurt, you know? Yes. <laughs> and it's like, they didn't do anything wrong. They're right. just coming in to learn something. Exactly. Or, or they don't know what they're in for. They just heard that there's some loud music going on and they want to be there. Yeah. And so there's that whole, and I love Paul Bailoff and the whole image. Oh, me too. Yeah. It's so I mean, comical. That's, it's hilarious. I mean, don't get me yeah. wrong. That is funny as hell, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah. But um, mm. yeah, like say, say for instance, okay, you're in the Midwest and you don't have an act. Like, I mean, it's different now with the internet, but like, say you didn't have access to a lot of things and your only reference point is like Motley Crue and things like that. And then you hear this band and you're like, wow, this is, this is the light, you know, this is the way I want to, this is the, what I like for real, you know, cause you just never have been exposed to that stuff. There's nothing wrong with that, you know, but, no, but it is still I, funny that like, yeah, oh yeah. Know, Paul Bailoff school of thought is still hilarious. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I love, I love his whole, his, he was, he was a living legend and didn't know it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, the, so the whole thing is like, I, and I say this, I used to say this more often than not, but um, you know, when you think I, I could almost say Ace of Spades, you know, and then kill them all or something like that, you know, and that made a lot of people throw away their their docking records. Right. <laughs> you know, when they heard that, and it's like, what? You can do that with music, right. with musical instruments. And it's like it made people like go, wow, OK, obviously I'm listening to the wrong shit. Well, man, that's like training wheels. You got it. Right. Start and I still with, love right? docking, man. Oh, sure. Docking rules. Yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you, you, wouldn't have, you wouldn't have found Metallica without you having a previous interest in docking. You, which you, okay. you were interested in loud guitars and rebellious music. And if that was the most you could find at the time, then you, then you bought docking records. Yep. But that's the stepping stone that leads you to, oh, my God, here's Metallica. And, oh, my God, here's Sepultura. And then off you go on a different right. track, you know? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Both those worlds can exist at once. You know, you can still like that stuff and still like the really heavy shit, too. There's, there's That's me. Yeah. You know, it's, it's music. <laughs> you know, it's that's like the point. You, yeah. you like what you like. It's It doesn't have to be in a box where I only like this genre or only like this set of genres that are really extreme. You can like all, everything, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be, I mean, you definitely might lean a certain way to what your preferences are for sure. what kind of music you like, but there's all kinds of shit out there that you might like, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's kind of ridiculous to limit yourself to just yeah. a certain, you know, scope of, of music. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of sad. It's kind of sad, but, but I think that as people, as young music fans um, age and uh, grow up, so to speak, um, it, it takes it takes time. I mean, I remember being into whatever I was into, and then when I was about seventeen and eighteen and nineteen years old, if it wasn't Merciful Fate, Venom, Slayer, Metallica, and things like that, uh, it sucked. 
and yeah. fuck you. Yep. And it was a terrible <laughs> time of my life because I feel like I let myself down and I let go of a lot of really cherishable moments in my upbringing as far as what I was passionate about music. And I'm talking about, you know, Elton John and Queen and Kiss. Oh, yeah. And all of that stuff that shaped me as a music lover and yes. where and, and would help me become a songwriter. What I didn't know is just listening to everything loud, lo-fi, super fast and intricate and noisy and about uh, a deadly subject. Yeah. Uh, I had to snap out of that for a minute. What, what am I doing? Why am I alienating these people? And I just, I just think that it was a time in my life where I might've been angry about what I don't know. You could right. say late bloomer hormones, things like yeah. that. You don't know. I should have yeah. been on medication. We don't know. We don't exactly. know that. Yep. So yeah. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's I think all, you do go through a time period like that. I think at least for, for, you know, younger kids, like boys, especially go through that like angsty period where you only want to listen to pissed off stuff. And cause it fits your mood, you know, you're kind of pissed yeah. off of the world and for whatever reason, and you know, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And you know, you hate school or, you know, hate this or hate that. And it kind of all just kind of goes together with that, like really aggressive kind of music, you know, but yeah, I think you do miss out on some stuff if you only yeah. limit yourself to things like that, because you know, a lot of those bands, they grew up listening to the stuff like Ted Nugent, Aerosmith, mm -hmm. the, you know, that's the good shit. Yeah. I mean, that's like the masterclass in songwriting really is all that kind of stuff. So it's like, if you really study that stuff, you kind of realize, okay, I see where this stuff actually is coming from, you know, like you listen to Kansas and then you listen to merciful fate and you're like, okay, I, I get this, you know, yeah. like yeah. you yeah. hear those riffs in merciful fate or blue stuff. oyster cult or blue oyster cult yes. and ghost. Yeah, exactly. It's like yeah, the same exactly. fucking band. Yeah. You know? Yep. People don't realize yeah. that. It's no. like uh people people don't realize this is off this is totally off kilter and and then we'll wrap this shit up. But uh and I appreciate you talking to us today. But you know, sure, Gwen you. Stefani, no doubt. Gwen Stefani, and you hear some no doubt every once in a while in the grocery store. Of course you're not yeah. maybe pressing play on that unless you're a no doubt fan. That that's fine. But I, I think, oh, see if you guys have put this together, <laughs> whenever I hear Gwen Stefani sing No Doubt stuff, uh, I hear Getty Lee. <laughs> Interesting. Seems I random. never thought about that. I'm waiting I'll for to, some. To hear, like, if I'm in a grocery store and I hear that again, I'll have to think of Getty Lee. I want, I want someone to make some kind of, you know, Don't Speak, is that's a No Doubt song, and like Tom Sawyer mashup. Hey, you're you're a, a engineer, music guy. You could probably nice. do that for me. Can you do a Tom Sawyer? Don't speak modern day. What? Can you put those together? That's my list. Make that happen because the right tempos, after the book, the tempos are sim similar. You know, don't speak modern day. See if that wow. can happen, and you'll hear the vocal similarities. A lot of people think I'm fucking nuts. For you're crazy. That's dumb. I hear it big. That's time. interesting, man. You know, a lot like, of those oh. mashups blow my mind. Yeah, a lot of those mashups on YouTube and stuff blow my mind. I'm like, wow, that really does work. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, I'll add it to my list. Yeah, thank you for being here today. We really appreciate you, and I've I've got a lot of respect for you. Um, I think that you're a very interesting cat, and um, 
when your name kind of popped up from afar, I was like, man, I need to reach out and just get him on the show because I know it's going to be a dynamite episode. Well, I appreciate that, man. I, I, thank you for having me. And, you know, this is an honor and I, I really, uh, I'm, I'm stoked to be a part of this. Nice. Yeah, Joel. Thanks so much, man. I really enjoyed your story. It was nice to meet you and yeah, you too, uh, keep doing what you do, man. Um, on behalf of my co-host, Jason McMaster, I'm Metal Dave with our special guest today, Joel Grind from Toxic Holocaust on the Talk Louder podcast. 